You may be seated. Again, I just want to wish you all a Merry Christmas this morning and uh, welcome all of you to this gathering of First Baptist Church. This morning, we're going to be looking at the birth of Christ, not so much from the perspective of the nativity, the manger and the wise men and the shepherds and all of that, but we're going to be looking at the birth of Christ from the perspective of his family tree. And so I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter, uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 1. And in addition to Matthew chapter 1, I invite you to turn as well to Luke. We're going to be looking specifically at chapter 3, verses 23 and following. Now, I know what you're thinking. As soon as I say genealogy or family tree, many of you are like, oh, no. Oh, no. This is going to be a long, dry you know, detailed family tree. I mean, we all have relatives. We've all done this before with relatives. I want you to understand that I take my responsibility as pastor seriously, which is to say it's my job to look deep into the text and to find the golden nugget of spiritual truth. And uh, so I'm going to try to... uh, We won't have time this morning to go through every single name on this list, so don't worry. We're not going to be here for the next seven hours. It's going to be shorter than that. But uh, there are some important things that... I think are really important for you to understand as we celebrate Christmas this year. So I invite you to find your way, uh, Matthew chapter 1, Luke 3, and last but not least, you need to make your way to Hebrews chapter 7. Bookmark all of those, and then uh, we'll be looking at each of those passages in turn this morning. Before we get started, it, it would just be wise for us to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text and to help us to understand it. And so before we dig in, let's just take a moment and ask God to help us by means of his spirit before we look at his word. So would you please bow with me? Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for this word that you've given to us this morning about the birth of Christ and specifically the family tree. Lord, as we look deeply at your family line and what it means, our prayer this morning, Lord, is that we would understand that you truly are the Christ child the one appointed to atone for our sins, and the one that was foretold from before the beginning of the world. Help us to understand both the legitimacy and the authority of Jesus, that we might fully understand and know him, that we might trust in him, and that we might all today, Lord, surrender to you as our king. Do this, we pray, by your word, in the name of Christ. Amen. Odds are, if you're here this morning, you do one of two things as a pastime. As a hobby, you either garden, or as a hobby, interestingly enough, you work on your family tree. I was a bit startled to learn that. I'm sure some of you are probably surprised to hear that this morning. But according to a recent report, the two most popular hobbies in North America, gardening and researching your genealogy. It is a big, big business. All kinds of websites, all kinds of databases, whether you go to Ancestry.com or Family Tree, or whether you consult one of the many, many different libraries and databases that the Mormon church tracks as a result of their desire to be baptized on behalf of the dead. There are tons of businesses and tons of corporations. In fact, even today, you can get an over-the-counter mouth swab kit in which you can take a sample of your own DNA, put it in a vial, and ship it off, and they will send you back a report of your most likely related distant relatives, people you can call ancestors as a result of your genetic composition. 
Why are we so interested by all of this? Well, I personally think it has something to do with the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. And as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, it's the first one that, or Ephesians chapter 5, it's the first commandment that comes with a promise. Honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you in the land you are inheriting or in the land you are to possess. We're to honor our parents. We're to, that is, recognize the authority that they are in our life, how they've raised us, how they've shaped us. And we're to honor them in the sense that we're to be influenced by the example that they have set before us. As we come to Christmas time, it's important for us to recognize that Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. And he also comes from a particular set of parents. He also has a particular family tree. And his family tree is different than your tree or my tree in the sense that his tree is prophesied by God. And his tree, as recorded for us in Scripture, is intended by God to authenticate, that is, to prove his credentials for who he claims to be. So this morning, I'd like for you to look, Matthew chapter 1, you need to bookmark that, as well as Luke chapter 3. I've always been interested in this because many, many, many years ago, I was witnessing to a young man named Quinn, and I was trying to convince this man to give his life to Jesus, and he was a diehard cynic. He criticized every aspect of the faith, and the, the thing he really loved to ridicule the most was the two differing accounts of Jesus' family tree. And he would say to me, you can't trust anything about Jesus because even the guys that were there in the first century writing about him, detailing his biography, they couldn't even get it straight who his dad really was, who his grandfather really was. And that is, on first surface level reading, a significant question that we ought to be asking ourselves. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you look in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew tells us at the very start, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you jump all the way down to the very end, to verse 15, it says, Elihud was the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar was the father of Mathan, and Mathan was the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. So we know right off the bat, Joseph's father was Jacob, which means to us that Jesus' grandfather ought to be a guy named Jacob. So far, so good? All right, flip over to Luke chapter 3. Look at what Luke tells us in Luke chapter 3. Oh, I've flipped to Romans chapter 6. You can tell I've been flipping, I've been preaching through Romans a lot lately. Sorry, Roman, Luke chapter 3, look at verse 23. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Hmm, there's a problem here, isn't there? Matthew tells us that Jesus' grandfather was a guy named Jacob. Luke tells us that Jesus' grandfather was a guy named Heli. And there are other problems besides all of that. When we look at the differences between Matthew and Luke, before we begin to unpack some of these issues, it's important for us to gain our bearings. What is it that Matthew is trying to tell us? What is it that Luke is trying to tell us? Matthew is writing his gospel primarily to a Jewish audience. Jews are going to be very concerned with the legal 
status of every person in the nation of Israel. You'll recall that every Jewish child, when they were initially born, eight days after birth, they had to be circumcised. They had to be circumcised, and there were detailed records that were kept. All of this was important from a legal perspective because they understood that the land of Israel, the the land of Palestine, was a gift to Israel. Every tribe had a particular uh, inheritance, a particular portion of land that was given by God to that tribe, and every family within that tribe had certain allotments of that land that that belonged to them. And so they were very careful, very meticulous to track all of these things so that at any given time they could say, well, this parcel of the land belongs to that guy because his great-grandfather was so-and-so and they're from such-and-such a tribe. This was very, very important. But it's even more critical for Matthew writing to a Jewish audience because they had this expectation right around the time that Jesus was born that indeed Messiah was coming. And there were two incredible promises that, that were driving all of their hopes and all of their expectations at the time of Christmas, so to speak. Number one, the promise that was made to Abraham. God had promised Abraham, through your offspring, I will bless all the families of the earth. I will bless all the nations of the world. And indeed, as Abraham has a child, Isaac, and Isaac has a child, Jacob, and so forth and so on, all the way down until we have the 12 tribes of Judah, Judah has made an incredible promise. And Judah has a bunch of kids, all the way down to this one particular little shepherd boy named David, who the scriptures tell us had a heart after the heart of God. And God promises David, you shall never lack a man to sit on the throne. And so David has made this incredible promise. And all of this is in fulfillment, eventually, of the ultimate promise that was made to Abraham. And as you look at what Matthew is trying to communicate to the nation of Israel, he begins in chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so you can tell right off the bat, Matthew's goal in his specific family tree of Jesus is to communicate Two very important things to his Jewish audience. God is keeping his promises, these two big ones in particular to our nation, these two big promises, number one to Abraham and number two to David. But Luke is telling the story of Jesus for a different audience. He's telling a slightly different accounting of that story, every bit true, every bit as accurate as Matthew, but he has a different audience in mind. In fact, if you look at Luke chapter 3, verse 23, notice how Luke introduces his genealogy. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. And he begins to recount the genealogy of Christ the way Romans would have done it, not starting at the beginning and working to the present, but starting at the present and working back to the beginning. And so if you come all the way down to the end, look at verse 37, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mathaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, what Luke is trying to communicate with his genealogy is not the exact same thing as what Matthew is trying to communicate. Matthew wants the Israelite nation, Jews, to understand Jesus is the son of David. He's the Messiah. He is the Christ. Luke wants to communicate that too. 
But Luke, writing to a Gentile audience, is dealing with a number of other theological issues, issues that wouldn't necessarily have been shared amongst Jews. Number one, writing to a bunch of Romans, they had a whole panoply of gods. They had all kinds of gods that they worshipped. And what Luke is trying to communicate is that Jesus is the Son of God, and incidentally, oh, Roman audience, Greek audience, just so you are aware, there's only one God. And contrary to all of these other stories about how the world began, what Luke wants to emphasize is, no, there was one God who created all of mankind from one man, Adam. And Jesus is a descendant of that one man, Adam. He is fully human, but he is the son of God. That's what Luke is trying to communicate. So we need to have these two different theological focuses in mind as we consider Matthew's gospel, as well as Luke's gospel. From Adam to David, there's really no problem. From David to Joseph, we have some issues that we need to work through. And I know some of you might be sitting here this morning thinking, wait a minute, isn't it? I've heard somewhere someone told me that uh, Luke's gospel is telling the genealogy of Mary, and Matthew's gospel is telling the genealogy of of Joseph. But there's a problem with that. If you look if you look at Luke chapter 3, verse 23, it says Jesus when he began his ministry was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. Luke doesn't mention Mary, he mentions Joseph. These are two different genealogies or are they? Scholars upon initial investigation have said no, these are t- from David down to Joseph, these are two different genealogies. Therefore, one must actually be the genealogy of Mary, and the other one is the genealogy of Joseph. But then the question that is posed by, you know, well-educated skeptics and cynics, such as my friend Quinn, is this. If the Bible is completely true, and we can trust what the Bible is saying, then Luke, if he's really talking about Mary, why would Luke say Joseph? And immediately, the theological answers are put forward that says, well, you have to understand in the Jewish world, the woman was understood as being the husband, uh, sorry, being the wife of the husband, and it was really all about the husband. And so even though Mary isn't mentioned by name, Mary is understood to be the one Luke is talking about here, being the wife of Joseph. Interesting. Two problems with that. We know for a fact Matthew's gospel was written to a Jewish audience. And yet in Matthew's gospel, Matthew does not hesitate to name women by name. He names Rahab. He names Ruth. He mentions these ladies. He even mentions the uh, wife of Uriah, which is Bathsheba. He mentions these names in his account. So, Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, is not afraid for one second to mention a lady's name where that lady is particularly significant in the lineage of Jesus Christ. But also, here's the second problem. Luke's gospel is written for a Roman or a Gentile audience. They don't have any problems whatsoever mentioning females. This is not an issue that is bound up with the Gentile world. We're eisegeting when we say that what Luke is doing here is really talking about Mary we need to be honest with ourselves and say, no, if Luke were talking about Mary, Luke would say Mary. Look at what it says here. 
Verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. You notice that parenthetical comment, as was supposed? Well, why would Luke say that? Of course, he's just gotten done recounting the virgin birth of Christ. Jesus is not the biological child of Joseph. But people thought that he was. If Luke is talking about Mary, and he means for us to understand, even though he uses the word Joseph, if he means for us to understand Mary, then there would be no need for that parenthetical comment as was supposed, because Jesus absolutely was the child of Mary. The fact that we find in Luke this parenthetical comment, as was supposed, of Joseph, reinforces the idea that Luke is talking about the family tree of Joseph. But when we come to Matthew, we understand in Matthew, as far as Jews are concerned, legal title to land And other titles, such as, I don't know, being the king of Israel, being the son of David, all of that comes through the patriarchal side of the family. All that is passed down through your dad. It doesn't come through your mom. And Matthew is quite clear. We're talking about Joseph's family tree. And Luke, if we look closely, it seems pretty clear Luke is also talking about Joseph's family tree. So why are they different? Why are they so different, particularly from David down to Joseph? I don't have time to go through every single detail, but I want to just spell out one crucial difference that explains an awful lot. First off, we know that Luke is legal, uh, sorry, Luke is a biological understanding of the descent of Jesus, and Matthew is particularly concerned with the legal implications of who Jesus' ancestors are. But let's look down. If you looked all the way down, I want you to look in Luke's gospel. Come all the way down to verse 30, sorry, verse 27. Jesus is described as having all of these different fathers. And then in verse 27, we come to one of his great-great-grandfathers. It says Jesus was the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson. And it says of Jonan, who was the son of Resa, who was the son of Zerubbabel, who was the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri. So two names there, Zerubbabel and Shealtiel and Neri. I want you to track those names, Zerubbabel, Shealtiel, and Neri. Flip back now to Matthew's gospel and look what it says. Beginning in verse 10, it says that Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh was the father of Amos, and Amos was the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah, underline that name, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Well, wait a second. How can Jeconiah be the father of Shealtiel when Luke tells us that, in fact, Shealtiel was the son of a man named Neri? Oh, we see a difference now very pointedly in these two accounts of the family line. You may recall that after David, there was his son Solomon who sat upon the throne. And after Solomon, there were a number of kings that came after him, and each one was progressively more and more evil. And God sent a number of prophets to warn the nation of Israel to turn from their wicked ways. 
And there would be times where you'd have a good king that would rise up and enact certain reforms, but he would almost immediately be followed by a bad king who'd go right back to the same old ways. It got progressively worse and worse, and God kept threatening that they would be taken away from the promised land, that they would be dragged away into exile. And we come to this man, Jeconiah, who sits upon the throne. He is the son of David. And God makes a really, really harsh judgment against Jeconiah. Jeremiah tells us of it in Jeremiah chapter 22. Don't flip there, just listen. God says concerning Jeconiah, as I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were to be the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Jeremiah is told to go and prophesy to the sitting king, a man named Jeconiah, that he is evil and that no matter what he does, none of his children will sit on the throne of David. And when Jeconiah hears this, can you imagine what his response is? Oh, no, I should repent of my sins and get right with the Lord? No, his response is to assume incorrectly that this is not something to be believed because he is the son of David. He is in the line of David, and God promised David that he would never lack for a man to sit on the throne. How could God make a promise to David that he would never lack a man to sit on the throne, and now here God is threatening Jeconiah that none of his children will ever sit on the throne? You go back and you read the account of Jeconiah, and one of the things you discover is he had seven kids. He was indeed a very wicked king, and all of his kids over time were either murdered or died. None of his children survived to sit on the throne, and Jeconiah himself was dragged off into captivity to Babylon, never to be seen or heard from ever again. How can it be that God would keep his promise to David that he would never lack for a man to sit on the throne, and yet we come to Jeconiah, the great-great-great-great-grandson of David, and this man is so evil and so wicked in God's eyes. He says, I'm not going to have you or any of your kids on this throne. You'll never succeed in having one of your children on the throne, and they do come to an end. How can that work out? How can that be possible? The genealogies of Matthew and Luke tell us. If you're tracking this, look at again at Luke chapter 3, verse 27. It says, Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri. You'll recall over in Matthew, Shealtiel is said to be the son of Jeconiah. But we see here that he's actually from a slightly different line. The son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Aldi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Methah, the son of Nathan, the son of David. We have two kingly lines here. And Luke points out which one he's talking about. David had a number of kids. The one that immediately succeeded him on the throne was Solomon. 
But David had another child named Nathan. And what happens is you come to Jeconiah and God says, you will never sit on the throne. You will never have a child that will ever hold the throne of David. And indeed, Jeconiah goes down in history as the family line of Solomon being cut off. You see, God never made a promise to Solomon that Solomon would never lack for a man to sit on the throne. God made the promise to David that David would never lack for a man to sit on the throne. And what we see happening between the genealogy of Matthew and the genealogy of Luke is that Matthew is telling us that Shealtiel was the son of Jeconiah. But Luke says, no, Shealtiel was the son of Neri. What's going on here? Well, Shealtiel is absolutely the great, great, great grandson of Nathan, the son of David. And Jeconiah is the great, 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 great grandson of Solomon, the son of David. But when the family line of Solomon is cut off, the legal inheritance of the throne passes to the closest next of kin, which was Shealtiel. So Shealtiel inherits the throne from Jeconiah, and the legal inheritance is passed down to the descendants of David, but not through Solomon. It is the descendants of David through Nathan. Nevertheless, God is still true in his promise to David. We work our way down through the lists, and they're relatively identical. Matthew is presenting things in a, chronolog- in a, in a legal fashion, so he's showing 14 generations from one to the next to the other. Luke is showing us the actual biological descendants, but we come down to the last name on the list right before Joseph, and Luke tells us that Joseph was the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, and Matthew tells us that Joseph was the son, uh, was the, uh, that Jacob was the father of Joseph, and that the father of Jacob was Mathan. They both have Mathan listed, but then we have two different sons mentioned here. We have Heli, and we have Jacob. Now, we can't be entirely sure. The records, the extra-biblical records that have survived indicate that indeed Mathan had two sons, one named Heli and one named Jacob. So Joseph, is he the son of Heli, or is Joseph the son of Jacob? Which is it? He can't be the son of both, can he? Or can he? You see, there's one other little interesting detail from Hebrew law, which, again, we're not very familiar with, but we ought to be. It's the custom of leveret. It's called leveret marriage. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses tells the nation of Israel, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. And we're most familiar with this from that book of, that, that lovely book of Ruth, in which Ruth comes back from the land of Moab and Boaz falls in love with her and there's this custom that's at play and there's another next of kin that's closest to Ruth and really he should have the right of first refusal and there's this interplay between Boaz and this other relative, and eventually Boaz is able to marry her. 
And it's such a beautiful love story, but you don't really understand the nature of that story unless you understand leveret marriage. You see, the Jews were so uh, particular about ensuring that the legal title, the inheritance of the land and all of this was passed down correctly from generation to generation that they even had a custom where if a man and a woman were married and the husband died having produced no children, his brother should marry his wife and produce children in his name. So which is it? Is Joseph the son of Heli or is Joseph the son of Jacob? We can't be 100% sure, but it seems likely that Matthew recording the legal passing of the title of the throne of David down is recording Jacob as the legal father of Joseph. But perhaps Jacob died and his widow married whom Luke describes to us here. Luke married this, uh, this other individual, Heli, and he raised up Joseph in the name of Jacob. What we see then in these two accounts is that in Matthew's genealogy, the legal promise of the throne of David is passed down. And Matthew is careful to point out the legal transfer of this possession all the way down to Jesus. Whereas when we look at the account of Luke, Luke shows us the biological relationship of these different men and the actual physical descent from one to the next. These two genealogies don't contradict each other. They're perfectly consistent, but they're seeking to show two different purposes. One, that Jesus is legally the heir to the throne of David. That's Matthew. And Luke is there to show us legally that Jesus is a biological descendant of David as well. Now, I know some of the ladies are in the room, you're thinking to yourself, well, isn't that just fantastic? All this talk about the men, all this talk about Joseph and, you know, the legal inheritance and all of this and biological that and legal that. And of course, Mary gets short shrift. We don't know anything about Mary. All this time I'd been told that Mary's genealogy was recorded for us in Luke and Matthew's had to deal with Joseph. And now what pastor's telling me is we actually don't have in, in either of these accounts anything to do with Mary. That's just typical, right? Isn't that what you're thinking? Well, I didn't say that we didn't know anything about Mary. We don't know as much about Mary as we know about Joseph. But we know something about Mary that's quite crucial. If you're in the Gospel of Luke, I want you to turn back with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke has this great introduction where he's trying to reassure Theophilus that indeed everything he's writing has been well-researched. And of course, we've just worked our way through this rather dry genealogy, and we know for sure Luke has researched everything, and he wants Theophilus to have certainty. And as he begins his gospel, having uh, introduced his letter to this guy named Theophilus, the first thing right out of the gate that Luke wants us to know, he wants us to meet the parents of John the Baptist. And so it begins. It says, if you, oh, I'm in Matthew, sorry, let me get back to Luke. In Luke chapter 1, if you jump down past the prologue, picking it up in verse 5, it says, In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. Okay, so he's a priest. That means he's of the house of Aaron. And interestingly enough, Luke tells us he's married, his wife is also from the house of Aaron. It says, her name was Elizabeth, 
And it says he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. What people often forget is that John the Baptist is from the house of Aaron. But why do I bring this up in connection with Jesus? What does this have to do with the lineage of Christ? We understand one very crucial and very important detail about Mary as a result of knowing who Elizabeth is. If you jump all the way down to Luke chapter 1 and pick it up in verse 35, it says, The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. She's just been told, your child is going to be Jesus. He's going to be the Son of God. But look at what Luke tells us in verse 36. And behold, and the ESV translates it, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was, and he goes on to describe essentially that, you know, that she's pregnant with John the Baptist. But there's an important detail that's mentioned there, which I think all too often we just skip over. Elizabeth is the relative of Mary. And in fact, the Greek word is quite specific. They are cousins, which is to say that as cousins, at some point in the past, they had either the same grandfather or the same great-grandfather, which is to say that if Elizabeth is of the daughters of Aaron, the great high priest, then that means Mary is also of the daughters of Aaron, the great high priest. What do we know about Mary? Do we have her exact lineage? No, we don't. We do not. But we do know that Mary is of the great high priest's household, and we know that Joseph is of King David's household. And what makes this particularly interesting? We have all kinds of genealogical records in the Old Testament. You find it in Genesis, you find it in Numbers. The most extensive is found in 1 Chronicles. In fact, if you ever read 1 Chronicles, I'm sure you never read the first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles because chapters 1 to 9 are detailing all of the family trees of all the important people that came back and settled in the land of Judah after the deportation to Babylon. The author of the book of Chronicles wants to establish all of these different family lines and he establishes the throne. He, he traces out the family line of David and he traces out the family line of Aaron. You go back, you look at all these different family lines and you research all the names and you look at all the different ways that they might cross over. And do you know what? If you spend enough time doing that, which I have, you find something really interesting in terms of what you don't find in all of the scriptures, in tracing out all of these different family lines, in trying to track all of these different names of the father and the son of so-and-so and the son of such-and-such, you never find that the house of David the king of Israel ever crosses over the line of Aaron, the chief priest, and the line of Aaron, the house of Aaron. Never once does the house of David and the house of Aaron ever cross over. The only time scripture ever mentions it to us is right here in the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that something interesting? But you know why this isn't interesting to us in terms of what scripture has to say. I see some of you sitting here this morning thinking, this is all really fascinating, but I don't want you to get too caught up in it. You see, God never made any promise to the house of Aaron that he would have a great, 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 great grandson who would rule forever as a priest. 
The promise was made to the house of David. You say, why do you go to all that extent to show us that? Well, I go to all that extent to show you that both genealogies are really talking about Joseph. And that's why there's no contradiction between the two. But the reason why I bring up Mary is to show that Mary very much so did have an influence on Jesus. But Jesus doesn't inherit his priesthood through Mary. Inheritance in Israel never worked that way. It always came through the Father. Yeah, yeah, but Pastor Josh, isn't Jesus our great high priest? Yes, he is. But not because of his relationship to Mary. Flip with me over to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 11. The author of Hebrews is wanting to actually discuss the priesthood of Christ. And he says, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Now, what the author of Hebrews is telling you is that indeed Jesus is a priest, but he's saying that the Levitical priesthood was always flawed. And if the Levitical priesthood had been good, why then, indeed, we would still have a high priest today from the tribe of Aaron, from the house of Aaron, from the tribe of Levi. But he's saying, actually, no, that's not the case. And here is why. When you're a priest of the house of Aaron, born of Aaron, you always have to offer two sacrifices. First, you have to offer a sacrifice for yourself, for your own sins. And then, secondly, you have to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the nation of Israel. But what Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus is very specifically not descendant, and he doesn't take his title from the house of Aaron for one very crucial reason. Look at what he says, verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. He's talking about Jesus, and Jesus legally and biologically through Mary, not through Mary, through his legal descendant from David is of the house, uh, his legal descendant from Joseph is of the house of David. But he's saying here that his, he, doesn't, he belongs to the house of David, and no one from the house of David has ever served at the altar. And so the question might arise in the minds of a Jewish audience, how can Jesus be our great high priest when he comes from the tribe of Judah, of the house of David, when no one from that tribe and no one from that house has ever been appointed to serve? And he goes on, he says, It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses, prophesying, said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, that is, his biological or legal inheritance, but by the power of an indestructible life. And Hebrews then goes on to quote, It is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When we read of Melchizedek in the account in Genesis, he appears out of nowhere. He shows up. He's a priest. Abraham pays tithes to him. And just as quickly as he shows up, he's gone. We don't know anything about who his father was. We don't know anything about his mother. And so we come to the account of Jesus. And it's clear that Mary had the same father, grandfather as Elizabeth. Therefore, she's of the house of Aaron. But why is this not given any play in the Bible? I'll tell you why. 
Everybody from the tribe of Levi of the house of Aaron were all sinners. They all lived. They all died. They all did their service. They did what was asked of them until it was time for them to go on to heaven. But God is very clear in appointing Jesus, number one, as our king, but number two, as our priest. And when it comes to the priesthood, he is not going to say that he inherits his priesthood through any family line. And indeed, that's why it doesn't matter that he's from the house of, Aaron, of, of Mary, that Mary is from the house of Aaron, because priests are chosen by God, not on the basis of who they come from as a family member. The priesthood is chosen by God, ultimately as a foreshadowing of our great high priest, Jesus, who is chosen by God, not on any legal inheritance or any family relationship, but as Hebrews tells us, on the basis of a holy and sinless life. He goes on, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. I draw all of this to your attention this morning so that you understand this is what Christmas is. Christmas is Jesus the son of David, entering into the world to be our king, to rule over us. But secondly, and more importantly, Christmas is the arrival of our priest, the one who is the go-between, the one who is the mediator, the one who makes peace for us on our behalf with God, and continues even to this day to intercede for us. And as we're thinking about Christmas, we talk about how Herod was going to go kill all the babies in Bethlehem, and Joseph had to rise up in the night and take his wife and take his child and flee to Egypt. We see that in Matthew. But you know what we see in Luke? We see a peaceful scene of a a mother with her child in a manger, We hear the sounds of cattle lulling and shepherds coming and worshiping. And we skip over all of those details of Joseph having to rush Mary and his baby down to Egypt in the middle of the night. We come to this wonderful account where they take Jesus to be circumcised in the temple. And two people show up in the temple. Simeon and Anna. And both of them comment that this is the one who has come to bring consolation to Israel. Christmas is about the birth of a king, one who is fit to rule. But Christmas is also about the birth of a priest, one appointed not because Mary is from the household of Aaron. He doesn't inherit anything through that line but one who has been appointed after the order of Melchizedek to be your comfort and your consolation. When you think about who you are, you come from somewhere, you have parents who gave birth to you. This has been particularly pressed home upon my heart, being the father of three adopted children. From when they were very little, two and three years of age, 
Shanti and I made the decision that we would be very honest and transparent with our kids about where they come from. To tell them that they came from other families, but that they were our children. Sometimes skeptics and cynics, they look at all this stuff about Jesus being the adopted son of Joseph, and they get in all of this sort of stuff, and they say it doesn't mean anything. It does to God. Do you know what Jesus gives you and me? John tells us, to all those who believe in Jesus, he gives to them, to you and me, the right to become children of God, not by blood, he says, not by the will of man, he says, but by the will and the choice of God. Because Jesus is the adopted son of Joseph, the full legal heir to the throne of David. He understands adoption and he dies for you so that if you would believe in him, you too would be adopted into the family of God. That's what Christmas is all about. And I want you to understand who you are today, not on the basis of who your earthly mother and father were, but on who your heavenly father is. It should shape and change your perspective. I was reading a few years ago uh, an article in Times by a man named Gregory Rodriguez who was talking about this rise, this craze in genealogies and family trees and tracing out all of our lineages. Gregory Rodriguez writes, quote, A few years ago, my father spent three years researching our family roots. At the end of his journey, he presented to each of his children an ornate album containing his findings, which reach back all the way to the early 18th century in what is today Chihuahua, Mexico. He makes this really interesting comment. He says, While I admired the work he'd done and thought most of what, while I admired the work he'd done, I thought mostly that what he had done, although pretty cool, did not have the power to change the way I saw myself in the world. Rodriguez says, I got this book, and I was reading it, and it's got my whole family history, and I'm like, yeah, okay, that's kind of interesting, but so what? But he writes a little bit further. He says, that was before I looked more closely at the photocopy from the 1900 census that he had placed under a laminated sheet on page 38. Well, it took him 38 pages to get to something that really grabbed his attention, but he got there. And the same is true of genealogies in the Bible, I would just suggest. Sometimes you've got to work to get to it, but it's there. He says, page 38. It was then that I discovered that my great-great-grandfather, Federico Rodriguez, who worked as a smelter in a large copper mine in eastern Arizona, had arrived in the United States as early as 1893. Before I had thought that both of my mother's and father's families came to the United States in the 1910s during the Mexican Revolution, we hadn't really known much about the paternal side of my dad's family, however. Suddenly, there it was. Proof that my dad's great-great-grandfather was living and working and raising a family in Arizona 19 years before it even became a state of the union. It might seem silly to you, 
and initially it didn't mean much to me. But every time I fly to the Grand Canyon State, I can't help but think about as I'm getting off the airplane, wearing one of those silly pilgrim hats with one of those really cheesy large buckles and declaring to everyone that I'm related to one of the initial founders of one of the states in the United States. I don't think of myself only as being from Mexico. I think of myself now as a pilgrim, along with millions and millions of other Americans. I can't explain how or why, but knowing where I come from has changed a lot about how I think of myself. First Baptist Church. We all have family trees. We all have grandparents and great-great-grandparents. All of us come from somewhere. You today have the opportunity to be called a son or a daughter of God. And while your family tree is important, indeed, the fifth commandment reminds us, honor your father and your mother. While your family tree is important, it's not determinative of your future. What is determinative of your future is what you do with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Christmas time and the opportunity to reflect on these interesting and unusual and miraculous details that all surround the birth of our Savior. Father, as we worship Christ this holiday season, our prayer is that we would all know Christ, know him deeply, truly, and as fully as we possibly can, to know him in his word, that we might worship him as the Christ child, that we might worship him as the king, the son of David, that we might hope in him as the final and great high priest who intercedes on our behalf. Help us to know this and to understand it and to believe it. Do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.